Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. I'll be reading the passage this morning from a, from a translation of the Bible I just recently learned about. And uh, we have never established an official translation of the Bible as a congregation. We've encouraged certain translations until the day comes when the Bible is translated by someone who doesn't have a profit motive in it and published by a company that isn't seeking to make money. We're going to be stuck with translations that are probably less than fully reliable because there's always going to be the need to update things to make to keep the copyright running and to keep the the people updating their their purchases and that's the way the game is played these days i used to write on bible translation for world magazine a christian magazine and i I know the the players i know the the companies i know this thing pretty well and and so i'm happy that there is this new translation i'm going to give it a try Um, It's a continuation of the translation I preached on for many years. That translation has forked in the last few years. The New American Standard Bible, and now there's the 95 edition, and there is the the new New American Standard. So there's the American Standard, which was the new one in 1971, and that was the New American Standard. Then there was the new, new one in 1995, and then now there's the new, 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 American Standard Bible of, I think it was 2020 or 2019, I don't know. And now there is not the new, 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 new American Standard, but it's called the Legacy Standard Bible, put out by the same organization that put out the new American Standard, and they forked it, it seems. And this is the ongoing, and it's much more literal than the, the, the one that came out a couple of years ago, which we have not turned to. And uh, actually improves the 95 version in certain ways, translates doulos in the, Old T- in the New Testament, which is the word for slave. It doesn't wishy-washily back and forth between bondservant and slave, like we are bondservants of God but slaves of sin. So, <laughs> it uses slave for all of it, which is the term that the Bible has. I mean, it's not, there's no question about it. And so there are a number of improvements. So I'm going to read it to you. You may see it differs a little bit from the versions uh, that you're holding or the version that's on the screen, but that's probably been the case for many of us over the years. I know many of you use things like the ESV, the New King James, so we're going to just not pay attention when I read something that's a little different, and I'll see how it goes, and we'll see whether we like this, all right? So would you stand with me, and we're going to look together at Romans 4, 1 through 15. Romans 4, 1 through 15. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Therefore, is this blessing on the uncircumcised or on the 
or on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also. For we say faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be counted to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham, or to his seed, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith has been made empty and the promise has been abolished, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is also no trespass. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and your word is precious, precious to us. And I ask this morning, Father, that my words may not be mere words, but they may be your word, and that they may be accompanied by the Holy Spirit, by power, and bring conviction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I know that many of us have heard about those who are suffering at this Christmas season. We've learned that certain people are suffering that we didn't even know last week were suffering, and they may not have known it. And there are others in our midst who are suffering at this Christmas season. I know of some who are known to no one, but suffering at Christmas is not fun. Suffering at Christmas makes the, the assurance and the happiness and the the lights and the rejoicing of Christmas sometimes seem hollow to people because they look forward to the next year and they say, what is the next year going to bring? What, what lies ahead? And it's very hard to rejoice when you're saying, what lies ahead? What, what does the next year hold? And you have a very specific target or enemy that you see as approaching in the next year. I know this somewhat from a personal perspective because I remember my dad's dislike of Christmas it moderated over time, and I think it must. But initially, my dad, when we, I come to have a real recollection of Christmas, my dad did not like Christmas. It's about four or five when I first remember Christmas. And that was right the year that my, my older brother died, the last of my brothers to die. And I've told you before that my father, uh, at that point, put up a little sign by his easy chair that he'd come home from work and sit on and do writing on and things like that little handwritten thing that his secretary had made him that said bah humbug and every year would come out and go up beside the chair and that was kind of dad's attitude towards Christmas he did not like it I remember him over the years really not enjoying it my mother I don't think enjoyed it either now mother mud as we called her did a better job of hiding it but uh every year at Christmas you know, not, not quite at Christmas but like late August mud would say to Nathan and me her two youngest kids we were five and six beginning when this happened, or five and three, excuse me, I was five, Nate three. Um, my older brother was 10, and I suppose initially he heard these words, and I don't know if he was as frightened by them as we were. My mother every August or so for year after year would say, you know, Christmas is just too much about, about us. We, we should make each other gifts this Christmas and not spend money. And I'd go, huh? 
<laughs> I mean, no matter how much a kid likes what his mother makes him, it doesn't compete with a Nerf gun yeah, or whatever, or a new sled. Or, and, uh, and then another year it'd be, you know, Christmas is, it's all about us. We should just give money to, away at Christmas. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she did these things year after year. And there was always the threat that it might follow through, that she might do it. Because when my, my pastor at one point, our pastor, challenged us as a congregation to eat as third world people eat one day out of every week for a set period of time and to give that the money that we save to help the poor in, in, in third world countries. And so he suggested a diet of rice. Well, my mother had us on a diet of rice every Thursday night for the next 10 years. He, he was challenging us for three months, but it was forever for us. So there was always a little fear in our minds that mud might actually follow through on one of these, these vague threats she made. But my dad was the one who was really the bah humbug, and, and it, was, it was simply the realization. I mean, I, it's my realization today why. I, I never knew then why dad didn't seem to enjoy Christmas, but... Uh, Today I understand very clearly that after having lost three children over the course of 10 years, Christmas was not a time of celebrating. He was just unwilling to celebrate. I mean, he'd go through the motions, but he was unwilling to celebrate because he was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And some of you are waiting for the other shoe to drop at Christmas this year. You're saying, okay, okay, but I know something else is coming down the pipe and I just can't. I can't rejoice. I can't do it. With my dad, it was knowing that three children had died, one of leukemia, one of cystic fibrosis, one of hemophilia, and that the youngest two that he still had in his home had two of those diseases, hemophilia and cystic fibrosis. And so I'm sure my dad just looked at us and said, how can I be happy, you know? I've lost two kids to these things. How am I going to be happy? And he was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I know that some of you have, have had an illness come back. And you're looking into the future. And you're saying, I don't know. I don't know, God. I don't know if I can trust you. So that's why I've turned to Romans this morning to talk to you about the nature of God, the nature of faith, and the thing that saves us. All right? Because ultimately, my father was saved from that darkness by God and his nature and my dad's faith in God. And so I want to speak to you about that this morning. In this passage, Paul is writing to the Romans about why they don't need to worry about the Judaizers who are saying, if you don't get circumcised, you can't be saved. If you don't get circumcised, you can't be saved. And of course, the issue is not the natural reluctance of grown men to be circumcised who've not been circumcised as infants. There might be some of that, but that's really not what drives this. The question is, do they have to obey the entire law? That's the issue. And that is where the Jews are coming in and saying, you must do it. You must do what we have done. You must have the standing that we have on the basis of circumcision if you're going to go to heaven and Paul is writing to these people who have heard these things said to them, and he's saying to them, no, no, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about that. That's really not what God is looking for from you. 
And he does so not by addressing circumcision in itself as a discrete commandment that God had given, but he does so by addressing circumcision as part of the, the, the much larger framework the, of God's commands, God's law. Because circumcision was a law. It was a requirement that God gave to Abraham. God gave Abraham the law of circumcision. He did not have the entire Mosaic law, what we call the law of Moses, or the Mosaic law. He did not have that because Moses wasn't born yet. There were many things that had to happen during the era of the patriarchs, then during the era of the slavery in Egypt. Many hundreds of years had to pass before God finally on the way out of Egypt led his people to Sinai and gave them the law. And yet, to the Jews, circumcision was the first and perhaps most important of all the succeeding law that they received, the law of Moses. And so circumcision stood kind of as what we'd call a totem. You know, it was a thing that referred to many other things. It was a picture of something that could be fleshed out in the mind and that would be fleshed out in the word of what God required. And so under this heading of circumcision, under this one thing, stood many things. The whole Ten Commandments and then all the ritual laws, the ceremonial laws of the Jews. And so give in to the demand for circumcision and you're giving in to obedience to God and his law, the works of the law being the way we're saved. Now, you may wonder, what encouragement is there in my speaking to you this morning as I'm speaking about the law of God in the midst of what I described, the hardness of looking ahead to a year? Trust me, I hope it will become clear that there is real incredible encouragement in this. But we first have to make this, this Pauline of Paul, you know, it's the way he goes about it, detour into how we are saved what we must do, what we must, what is the thing that we do that God looks at and says, I love that one. It's not salvific. Salvation comes only through the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus can wash us clean, but there are things that we must do if God is going to say, oh, you get the blood of Jesus, right? And this is where we're focusing. Unfortunately, in the Jewish community today, as 2,000 years ago, salvation does not lie in the blood of Jesus. If you're a Jew and you worship the God of the Old Testament without acknowledging Jesus by, by circumcision, by obedience, by ritual purity, Jesus is not the path. This is why, as a church, we must stand boldly and clearly against every work of the law. And there are people, and it's common today for many people to say, you know, I'm going to, it was good in the Old Testament, we're going to do it because it's good. It's right, you know? I mean, if it was right for them then, it's right for us now. I guarantee you, in that heart, there is a certain understanding, a certain sneaking feeling that God will account my doing this, my obeying this Old Testament law as righteousness. And it's, it's awful, this passage says, 
you want to go that way, you go that way, and you keep it, and you keep every bit of it because you've betrayed the fundamental thing that God did in Jesus, which is to, re- to remove the sins that are described by the law. So the futility of works in, our, in God's economy, in his way of giving salvation, the futility of works of the law. When you look to circumcision, when you look to the things you do, when you say to yourself, you know, I'm trying to please God, I've done the things, I don't care if they're written in the Bible or they're written in the tradition of the church, I've gone to confession, I've, I've knelt with the congregation, I've done this, you know, I, I don't know, there's other churches' traditions and there's probably ours as well that we could speak about. I prayed the sinner's prayer, I did this. Whenever you look to a thing that you say, this is what God requires, you have lost sight of what God actually requires. Because every one of these deeds is of the law and what Paul says here to the Romans is the law can't save you. For if those who are of the law are heirs, the Jews who follow the law, if they are heirs of eternal life, Faith has been empty, and the promise has been abolished. So you have no faith and no promise. Keep it up, but you have to be perfect. So Paul is making two very clear logical points at this, at this particular point in his letter to the Romans. And both of these are important. The first is that Abraham was actually a sinner even before he had the law of circumcision. Abraham was a sinner because he needed salvation. He needed righteousness. He did not have it. That's obvious. Before the law of circumcision came, when there was no law, Abraham was still dying and dead in his sin, in his trespass. Now you say, how can that be? Well, because the law only reveals the inner attitudes of the heart. And the inner attitudes of the heart are there even when there's no law to reveal them. Do you understand what I mean about the law revealing things? The Bible describes the law as a mirror into which we look. And we suddenly say, oh, oh I am dirty. Oh, I am ugly. Oh, you know? We come to the mirror and we say, oh. And so the law is this. To a person who has no view of himself, who naturally assumes that he's good and beautiful and handsome or whatever you think about yourself morally, The law says, no, you're not. No, you're not. This is what's there. This is the reality of who you are. And and this is written on the heart. Abraham was a sinner even without the law because the law is written on men's hearts. And so Romans 2.12, Paul has already written, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. You don't have to have the law to go to hell. You can live in a time without the written law of God or without any commandment of God. Because God wrote the law on your heart and you know you're wrong when you lie. And you know you're wrong when you steal. And every human being knows these things, right? They know them. Don't let anyone tell you they don't know the law, that they don't know what God requires. Everyone understands that murder is wrong, right? Everyone. No one doesn't know it. Now, at some point, they come to the point of denying it to the, where they say, I don't care. That's not not knowing. They know, but they don't care, and that's common. 
But everyone knows the law of God because it's been written on our hearts. God's given it to us. So Abraham is a sinner. He's a sinner even without the law because the nature of God is clear in what's made and the nature of man is clear in the way we violate what we know about God. What we already know about God, that he's pure and true, and that he's peaceful and that he loves people, and that he's love rather than hatred and violence. This world teaches us these things. And so anyone who goes around violating the law that is written on our hearts is violating what we know about God. Sin is known by all. Everyone understands inherently, innately that they're a sinner, right? You don't really have to tell people that they're a sinner for them to know it. Now, you must preach sin to people. You must call them to their sin. The Bible says preach repentance because unless you do that, people won't go to God. So you must use the law, but the law doesn't really define your sin. It's a picture of your sin. If you haven't had it defined already by what you know, then, well, then you're not human because that's one of the primary differences between man and animals. And even animals at times seem to understand that you need to stick up for the children. And that if a big bully comes against the child, the big male should stand up. So even they seem to understand. The Bible says that all of creation is suffering under sin. And even animals, in their understanding of rightness, demonstrate that they know something about God. The dog that saves the child from the car. You know, these stories, this is creation as God made. It speaks about God. It tells us about God. So Abraham was a sinner even without the law. That's the point that Paul's making, and it's, I think you agree with that. The second, and this is a second logical point that Paul is making in this chapter, is that Abraham was not saved by obedience to the law. He did eventually receive the law of circumcision, and Paul calls it law. It's, it's law. It's a requirement of God. He did eventually receive it, but Paul is making a, a fundamental logical, chronological point. It's logical on the basis of chronology. And what he says is that Paul had already been accounted righteous by God before he received the law of circumcision. So we know that the law of circumcision came to Abraham much later in time than Abraham was said in the, New, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, to have been accounted righteous by God. <laughs> Why was Abraham accounted righteous by God? Well, in Genesis 15, verse 6, I mean, Paul quotes it here, but let me take you back to the source that he's quoting. Abraham has gone to war to rescue Lot. He comes back home, and we read in Genesis 15, after these things, the word of Yahweh, it's another change this Bible makes, calls him Yahweh rather than Lord, which is the actual Hebrew transliterated word for God. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear Abram, Abram, he's not Abraham yet. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, God comes to him and says, don't be afraid, you've, you've alienated even those you went to war with and went to war to preserve because you wouldn't take their money and you said, I don't want your money. So even your allies are now potentially your enemies and God says, don't worry, I'm a shield. Your reward will be very great. Abraham, Abraham said, oh Lord Yahweh, what will you give me as I go on being childless 
and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, I don't have a son. And what are you going to give me? And Abram said, since you have given no seed to me, behold, one born in my house is my heir. And Abraham continues to speak and says, look, this guy who's he's really a slave of Abraham's is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said to him, now look toward the heavens and number the stars. Can you imagine this God taking you outside in the time without light pollution and without clouds and without air pollution to dim it, looking up like you do in the boundary waters or in the midst of the Sonoran Desert or something where it's really dark and seeing the, oh, the stars across the sky and God standing beside you, the creator of it, and you know he's the creator. And God says to you, now look toward the heavens, look up, and Abraham looks up and says, number the stars if you are able to. And God said to him, so shall your seed be. You understand that the seed of Abraham is not just physical, but spiritual. That everyone who believes God is a, a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham. The Bible tells us this. As many as the stars, so shall your seed be to this old man with his old wife in their childless life. So he's looking up the stars and he's hearing what God says. And he's had 90 years. We don't know quite when, maybe 100 years, somewhere in between 90 and 100. 90 and 100 years of seeing the other shoe drop, of disappointment, of not receiving. But the next verse is the key verse. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he, that is Yahweh, God, counted it to him as righteousness. So the second logical point, first, Abraham was dead in trespasses even without the law. Second, the law didn't save him. This happens before circumcision, and he's already righteous. God says, you are righteous. And that is what saved him, believing God. Now, there are effects that the law has that are necessary, effects of our understanding God's righteousness and our unrighteousness that are absolutely essential to our faith, but they are in themselves not faith and they cannot save. And the first of those is obedience. The children of Abraham didn't understand what God had done with Abraham. They didn't understand that it was not circumcision that saved him, but his belief in God, his trust in God. And they immediately turned to circumcision, and then when Moses came along, they turned to the purity laws, and they turned to all these things, and they tried to play off the law of God against kind of the person of God. And so they know that they've offended God, but they say, oh, huh, God, look. Look, we're obeying you here. You know, you got to count us righteous because we're obeying you here. And so they're arguing law. 
and saying, we're righteous because of this against God, the one who gave them the law to define their unrighteousness. And that portion of the law that is not defining unrighteousness is defining the need of Jesus Christ. All the sacrifices point to it as the means of our righteousness. But the children of Abraham who don't understand or have the faith of Abraham and who are not truly children of Abraham as a result, they say, I'm doing these things, God You've promised that these things are important. You've told us that they will lead us somewhere. I'm trusting them against you. And so we play off our obedience in one area against our disobedience in another area. Well, God, I know I didn't, I didn't keep my mind pure this week. I looked at porn, but here I am in church. And, you know, I went to a small group and I participated and and I, when the time came, I actually spoke to people and said, all right, I looked at porn, you know? As though these acts make up for the sin. And these acts never make up for the sin, never. There's so much sin and so few acts that even if God did say, okay, you can work your penalty off, you'd never do it. You'd spend eternity in a, the salt mines working and paying and you'd never pay it off. It's ridiculous. Those of you who are parents, you know that sometimes when your kids have done something really bad, they make a very pious show of doing certain things that are very good. They stole the family car, they got drunk, they ran a stop sign, totaled the, the family car, have a DUI against them. The next day, you can be certain they'll take out the garbage, right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, very meekly, they take out the garbage. Like, I'm taking out the garbage, let's just ignore that DUI, all this. I'm taking out the garbage, you know? <laughs> but some of the kids are laughing. Maybe it's not funny to you who are parents. I think it is kind of funny, you know. The things that kids will do is, oh, my meek and my kowtowing at this point covers everything I did up to this point. Yeah, well, maybe young people are more honest than we are. We play our obedience off against our disobedience. <coughs> and God is no fool. And he understands that this obsequious obedience, this, I'm going to obey my parents. I'm going to show them that I'm really a good guy. I'm a good kid. God is not fooled. (coughs) He understands that this obedience doesn't change the heart. Now, obedience is a good thing, and an obedient heart that loves God and wants to obey him is essential to faith. Obedience, you don't have faith without obedience. But you can have obedience without faith. There is much obedience that is not of faith. No faith, however, is lacking in obedience. So obedience is important, but it's not the thing, is it? So let's move on to other things that are part of faith and tied to faith and consequences of faith and producers of faith, but that are not faith, that are not in themselves faith. 
And another one is fear. Because the law creates fear. And if we look at ourselves in the law, one of the purposes of the law is to cause us to fear. To say, whoa, I am a, I'm at odds with God. And fear of God is essential. You can't have faith without fear. The, the fear of the Lord, the Bible tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. But also... <laughs> The fear of God is very sinfully natural. Because whenever you get around something immensely powerful and dangerous, you feel fear. I, I was watching the, the pictures of a couple of weeks ago of that, that guy hanging out of the helicopter and, uh, and going down into the car in the Niagara River just in front of the falls. How many of you saw that? None of you? In, with the snow coming down? I mean, and the wind and the buffeting, and here's this guy, and there's snow, and there's, and there's a car, and they've seen a person in it, and he's hanging out of the helicopter, and there's icing going on with the blades of the helicopter, even as he's hanging. It's dangerous, but they can't put their swift water rescue team out because it's just yards from the falls. And so this guy is lowered in his gear out of, out of the door of the helicopter, and he goes, the lady tragically was dead. But he got her out of that car at the brink of Niagara. Well, I sat there watching that video, and I'm telling you, every sphincter in my body tightened. It was scary. Same thing that happens to me when I'm walking up the path to Angel's Landing, and I finally get up enough courage to say, I'm not going further. You know? Because it takes courage to say I'm not going further. But it takes even more courage to go all the way. And I don't have that. Because I'm around something dangerous and I don't like it. Even to the point with my life and maybe yours. When I go into Panera or Starbucks and a policeman comes in with his gun. I look at the gun and I think to myself at times. I don't like that. If this guy's unhinged he could just pull that gun and shoot me. You know, I, I don't like being around guns. They, they, they scare me, you know, because they can kill me quick. Well, so it's natural to fear God. I mean, if there's anything, anyone, I'll call him him, but he's greater than just a... If there's anyone who can kill you quick, whose power should be feared is God. And so everyone fears God. Great power causes fear. So you fear God? Good. The interesting thing is that the demons fear Jesus. Right? Whoa! Whoa! You're the son of God! Whoa! 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 What are you going to come to do to us? What are you going to do? You can smell the cowardice. You can smell the fear in their hearts. Right? From the way they speak to him. So, fearing God is not central it is not the heart of faith. You can fear God and be a demon. True fear is not craven fear, terror. <laughs> it's not cringing before God. Actually, those things are opposed to faith. There's a third thing. It's not obedience to the law. It's not fear. Faith is not knowledge. <laughs> now, belief has come to be in our day 
the mere acknowledgement intellectually of things, has become the one salvific act we do, the one law of God. You must say, I believe, I believe, I believe, and then you're, it's like an open sesame. I believe, ah, heaven's doors open because you said the right words. It's the one, the one law. It's the one act, the one demonstration of obedience that God requires. Say, I, I believe, and ah, okay. No, that's not... An African pastor used to speak to, used to say that, a friend of mine, he used to say that there is demon faith, demon belief, right? How the demons know that Jesus is God, they know it more than you do. And they're not saved by it. Demon belief, demon faith is not salvific. And let me add, because we're all proud of our intellects and because we all think that knowledge is more important than being, that knowledge actually is being, what's in our minds is true and whatever else goes on is false, that the intellect is not the center of salvation. It's one of the things that needs to be saved. It's not the place that's true and clear and can say yes to God. It's as broken and depraved as everything else in you. And so if, if the, the faith that you have, that you think is true faith because you know something, is a faith that can't be held by, say, an anencephalic baby. An anencephalic baby is a baby that is a child of Adam, born by the decree of God without a brain. And if you think your faith and your intellectual knowledge of God is going to save you and you think that a baby who was born without a brain can't have it, then you don't know God. Because it's not how bright you are that makes you know God. It's not your ability to cognate. So, knowledge, we must know God. But knowledge is worthless. Knowing God is, is vital. Knowledge is useless. What do I mean? Well, okay, I'm playing games with you here, but I'm illustrating and you understand that I, I can play games. Because the same word is used in the Bible of knowing. And of, knowing is used in a lot of ways. And one of the best ways, and I think the most illustrative for us this morning, the most important, is that when Adam saw Eve, he went and he knew her, and he had a son. Together they had a child. This is the kind of knowledge it's being united with. It's not your mind sitting and your cognitive abilities working, it's knowing, knowing. Kind of the way I knew my father's hands. I see hands today, and you know, my dad died 40 years ago. I knew his hands. When I see hands like his, I know I knew my dad's hands, you know? Knowing, knowing God, knowing him. So what was it that Abraham did if it wasn't obedience to a law, if it wasn't knowledge, if it wasn't fear of God? What did Abraham do that brought him to this place of righteousness? And the answer is clear. God came to him and said, look, 
the sky. Look at all the stars. Can you count them, Abraham? And Abraham said, I can't even try. God says, so will your descendants be. And Abraham says, okay. And he believes it. And what is that? Well, it's not fact. He's believing something, the promise of God, which is not yet accomplished. What is that? What is it to believe in something you're promised that is not there yet? You're going to say it's faith, but faith is bigger than this thing in certain ways. And yet this thing is bigger than faith. Now you say, yeah, that's impossible, David. I know it's impossible, but this thing is bigger than faith in certain ways. What is Abraham doing? As he listens, he hears a preposterous statement by God. It's preposterous, right? You know, in one sense, you look at it, if you just want to look at it from the number up in the sky, you go, well, no, never. If you want to look at it from the point of view of Abraham and his age and his wife's age and their inability to have children during the probably 70 to 80 years that they've been together, and now she's old, he's old, they're both dried up, and they're going to have a child? From that perspective, it's equally preposterous, right? But he believes. He believes. What is it? What is the thing? Can anyone want to venture? What is it to, to claim a promise and to look forward to it even when it's not there yet? That's right. It's hope. It's hope. He hopes in God. It's hope. He hopes that God will do it and he believes God in hope and he is reckoned righteousness. Obedience without hope is bargaining. Fear without hope is craven cowardice. Knowledge without hope is intellect, not knowledge and knowing personally. Hope knows God. Hope understands the nature of a father, a heavenly father, and it acts on God's promises. And so... 90 or 100-year-old Abraham goes into the tent and says, there's going to be a hot time on the old town tonight, Sarah. Huh? Ninety? Sarah's age. Hundred? Abraham's age. Old and hopeless in this realm to begin with. And Abraham says, hey, uh, it's not over yet. And he, he knows his wife, and he expects a baby. And behind that act lay hope, hope that God is good, hope that God intends good. Now, let me add, we have reason to believe that years went by before Sarah actually became pregnant. And in that hiatus, that period in between, Abraham's hope faltered and Sarah's hope faltered. And Sarah's especially at times, it seems, falters. She laughs. And, uh, uh, really? 
but they both falter and Ishmael's born in consequence but they continue to hope God continues to say my promise is true And Abraham actually sends Ishmael out, breaking his heart because he thinks and believes that God has a promise that's fulfilled in Isaac. So I speak to you who don't find joy in Christmas this year, and I say to you, God has given you promises. Will you pin your life and your hope on the faithfulness of God? This is faith. God has given you promises. And yes, the other shoe will drop throughout life because this is the land of death and sin. But God, he who promised, is faithful. And he will bring to pass the promises that he has made to you. He will. And yes, you may die. You may leave young children. You may not see your children coming to faith in your lifetime. Hard things may happen. The other shoe will drop. But God is never unfaithful. Die believing in the promises of God. They're true. That's faith. God is good to those who trust him. Not one of his promises is ever able to fail. Take God's word as a promise and live it. And you will see the glory of the Lord and your children will as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Abraham, this great man. I pray that it will provide encouragement, Father, to those who need it, that it will provide conviction to those of us who are prone to doubt, that it will be power to us, Father, who seem to be leading powerless lives. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.